The scripture reading for today is from Luke 2, verses 41 to 52. The boy Jesus in the temple. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintance, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in a temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor of God and man. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth among those with whom he is well pleased. That's what the angel said on a, on a dark night. As we wade into today, December 20th, 2020, uh, there's an incredible change that has happened in Southern California, especially in LA County over the last six days. Uh, for those of you outside of our community, uh, just a little recap is uh, the cases of COVID earlier this week uh, went from around 8,000 cases per day to 11,000 new cases in one day. And then Christmas crept one day closer. And the next day there were 22,000 new cases of COVID. And then Christmas crept one day closer and there was 0% capacity for our ICU rooms and over 53,000 new cases on Friday. Christmas is coming. Uh, over 1,500 deaths in California in less than a week. Uh, I think of uh, William Butler Yeats. Uh, he has this little couplet. It's the last couplet in his poem called The Second Coming. And it says this, it says, And what rough beast its hours come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Uh, in news fatigue, in quarantine fatigue, in a strange darkness, uh, can you find any joy? Is it even appropriate to find any joy? I read about Carol Benjamin this past week, a mother, and she knew immediately that after her little girl had been born, that there was something wrong with her little girl, and uh, there were major complications in the birth itself, 
and among other things, soon they discovered that her little girl could not hear. And so that's difficult. That's a darkness in and of itself. And then the day arrived when hearing aids and a special surgery uh, for her little girl and her little girl heard her big sister's voice for the very first time. It looked like this. What's going on? Baby sister. It's crazy Baby stuff. sister. Baby sister. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes joy will burst forth because it's been so dark and so difficult. And, and so children can give us a glimpse of, of what that looks like unfiltered. And it's not polished by years of stoicism or coping. And so every week during Advent, we've gone through an account, an account of a child or children in our scriptures and every week we want to find something that amazes us again, especially about the arrival of God to us, with us, Emmanuel. And this week, uh, we look at the beginning of Luke. And, and the beginning of Luke is uh, Jesus's baby scrapbook, if you will. Uh, we get two chapters of baby pictures, and then the rest of Luke uh, you know, chapters three to the end is about Jesus as an adult male, 30 years old to 33 years old. And at the very end of chapter two of Luke, that's that baby scrapbook, we have one account, one account of Jesus as a boy, a 12-year-old boy. It's the only one we have of his entire childhood. We have this one account and it's and it's packaged this one boyhood account when he's 12 years old it's packaged with all the other uh accounts of what we'd call the christmas accounts and we just don't really hear about that one do we i mean i i don't i've never covered this account as a part of christmas not at christmas time not during advent um, maybe it's because we don't see a manger and there's no hay and there's no starry nights. Um, maybe it just doesn't fit uh, uh, the, the Christmas sentiment that um, we look for. We just get this one yearbook picture of Jesus, and this is it. Well, uh, so why is that? Why is that? I, I don't get Jesus. I don't get Jesus. I, I mean, as a pastor... As a studier, so as a student of Jesus, I'm 46 years old. Um, it's my job. It's my job to understand Jesus. 
and I feel like I'm just beginning to know him and uh, there are many times I, I don't get him like I don't understand some of the things that he does or is doing I don't get some of the things that he's allowing and he's planning so if you say this morning you know I get Jesus then perhaps maybe you have some explaining to do to me because I want to know why certain things are the way they are. I want to know why some pains and injustices persist, seemingly unchecked, unfixed, un unaddressed. Uh, I, I do think Jesus is bewildering and puzzling, at times confusing, and I, I would submit that we don't really get him. And then you have Christianity and people like me, preachers, right? Um, they might say, yeah, we don't, we don't get this mysterious Jesus. He confuses our expectations. And then in the, in the same paragraph, they'll say, but hey, um, you should give your heart and trust all of who you are to this Jesus. And, and I don't think those two line up. I don't understand him. I don't get him. Therefore, I should trust him. Um, those don't seem to line up. Uh, so if I don't understand him, why? why? Why would I entrust my entire life to him? Uh, Christmas is preparatory. It is prep, right? It's not just preparation for January. It's but really for the rest of the story, for all of life. And this little yearbook snapshot of a 12-year-old kid, a 12-year-old Jesus, is going to show us something. It's going to show us, one, we don't get Jesus. We don't. Um, that's what that's what the text tells us. They didn't understand him, and I think that's still true today. Uh, whether you're you're the temple folks or the closest people to Jesus, like his family, they we don't understand Jesus oftentimes. And the second point I'll, I'll, I want to just touch on this morning is that Jesus is going to care for those he confuses, and what, what we just see that from the text where. Um, he goes back to Nazareth with his family to obey his parents and serve them. Uh, but the first thing I want to I want to touch on, and I want to commit to our hearts is is that we don't fully get Jesus. Uh, and that goes for people seeing him on the outside, and it goes for the people closest to him. We see this from verse uh, 46 through 49, and it said, "All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and at his answers." And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Um, so the people don't, who don't know him, they're amazed. They're amazed. They're confused that Jesus was like this. And they're more than a little confused because um, when he's in the temple um, sitting with the greatest scholars of Judaism, it's not like he was just rattling off memory work. Okay, so so we've seen that you and I have probably seen this. We've seen videos of a three-year-old reading, or a four-year-old saying all the states and listing global cities and and spelling exotic words and reciting long passages or poems from memory, um, and we say, oh, that that's amazing that they can do that. 
I, I, I saw an interview recently. It's with it was with a man and his 13 year old son who had just graduated from Columbia at age 13, and he is he's a smart smart kid, and and the interviewer uh, that was interviewing him uh, touched on some factual questions right surrounding mathematics and astrophysics and biology, and this kid this kid. D- Delivered huge complex answers, um, which is which is cool, which is great. Um, but then the interview did uh, interviewer did something. He began to ask questions of ethics, of philosophy, of meaning, and he was asking questions that probed solutions for huge, massive historical questions, um, question, uh, 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 questions that required massive synthesis, deep thought, and integration, and that is when this 13-year-old boy began to just sound like every other 13-year-old boy. He was too simplistic. He was too glib. He was out of his league. What did he not have? He didn't have wisdom. He didn't have understanding or deep development. He could regurgitate, but he did not have understanding. It'd be, it, it's like if we were to see a parrot or hear a parrot say, two plus two equals four. Everyone would be like, oh, that's amazing. We don't often see parrots say two plus two equals four. That's delightful. But none of us would trust the parrot to do other calculations. We'd be delighted, but we would understand, we would know intrinsically, oh, the parrot does not have calculation understanding. Um, and so, and so it was confusing to those who were watching little Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus, that Jesus at 12 years old had understanding. That was why they were astonished by this kid. See, he wasn't just some like robotic, colorful show pony that was regurgitating passages from the Torah. No, no, what amazes them is that he has understanding. He gets this, and that's confusing. How does this 12-year-old have understanding? Um, they don't know him. They, they're amazed, and, and they don't get it. They're like, how, how is that so? How is that so? They don't get it. Um, but this is probably more helpful to us, is that um, uh, you know who else was astonished and confused, and who else does not get Jesus? It's those who know him intimately and love him. The insider, so his family. So I don't want us to miss this, is those who love and follow Jesus won't fully get him either. So is that, that can be you right now, right? Like you've said, I've said that I love him and I want to follow him. But man, I am so perplexed at what he's doing. Like I don't get it. After three days, so Jesus is in Jerusalem. After three days, so his family, one day travel, they realize, oh, Jesus isn't with our entourage, right? You travel in huge family communities, and and, and then one day back to Jerusalem, and then on the third day, they search for him, and then they find him. And and, and this is what the text says. Is, it says, and when his parents saw him, uh, they, were, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, uh, why have you treated us this way? Um, look, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So, um, Mary is saying this, like, first of all, she doesn't get it. I'm a stop, like, I don't get it. I don't get you, kid. All right? Um, then she says this, why are you 
treating us like this? And for some of you this morning, that actually could be part of your question too, is why am I being treated like this? And then she she drops the old, um, your father and I, she brings dad into it. Your father, what is she doing? She is trying to establish some sort of authority. Like, hey, Buster, little Jay, you're our kid. Now, Jesus is very plain here. He does not match the desire, the distress of Mary. He doesn't match the hurt. He doesn't match the confusion. And, and he doesn't issue an apology either is he says this, I had to be in my father's house, which only adds to the astonishment and confusion. And and I'm going to show you why that's pretty confusing and perplexing. Um, uh, The idea of God as father is incredibly intimate and relational, right? Um, Well, we've had this benefit of Christianity giving God as our father for a couple thousand years. And it's been baked into our theology, our knowledge, our spiritual growth. And But we have to see this as we have very short historical memories, is that idea of God as Father was given to us through only Jesus. Okay, um, God as Father. Now, today, we can't imagine it any other way, but the Old Testament actually never talks about God as Father in a relational way. Occasionally, it talks about God as Father, but it's talking about like God is the source or the, the primary first cause of the nations, right? That, that's what it, it means. But there's never a personal address of Father. All throughout the Old Testament, it does, it's virtually never been said before, and you have this precocious little 12-year-old boy who talks about God in this intimate relational language, right? It, it was just as weird. It was just as weird as when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. He said, oh yeah, you should pray this way. Our Father, who are, that, that was bizarre, intimate relational language that no one had ever heard before. They don't have a reference for that. That's weird. It's literally unheard of before. You're a weird kid, Jesus. Get on the mule. What an odd bird. What an odd bird. Uh, but Jesus keeps adding to the confusion. So he doesn't say there, like, hey, look, I had to be in my father's house. Um, uh, the closest people just do not get Jesus. And he and he kind of zeroes in on his parents. And he, and he talks to Mary. He goes, why were you looking for me? Don't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Now look, Jesus is not an idiot. He's not mentally disabled by any means. He knows where he was. He knows where his family was. Um, But he asked that question, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? I had to be in my father's house. All right, this is what he's saying. He's saying, my relationship with God, my father, is so direct, is so preeminent, is so exclusively primary and necessary that in comparison, my domestic relationship with you is almost nothing. Like, what is my real father compared to yours? Like, this earthly thing with Joseph is nothing in comparison to what is going on between me and my real father. So... If that's the case, if that if that relationship is true, then if I am going to obey you, if I am going to listen to you, 
it will only be because I am volunteering to obey you. I don't have to obey you. <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying. I don't have to obey you. Jesus is the only teenager in the entire history of humanity that can say that and for it to be true and righteous. I don't have to obey you. I don't have to obey you. I have to obey my real father. And this is what Jesus is saying is, I'm older than you. I'm the authority here. You don't assess me. You don't monitor me. You don't grade me. You don't, you don't judge me. I assess you. I grade you. I judge you. This weird kid is saying, I'm above you. This is what's happening. And this is what we see in the text. This is why it's so important here in Luke 2. Is Jesus knows he's God. He knows he's the Son of God. At 12, he knows exactly who he is. And they don't get it. They don't get it. We don't get you, little Jay. And they're like, huh? Jesus, get on the mule, do your Hebrew homework, and try to keep it down until we get out of Jerusalem. Verse 50. They did not understand what he was saying. They don't get it. They don't get it. When Jesus said this, I had to be in my father's house. In Greek, it, it's, it's, it's a, a word construction where it says necessity. Like it had to happen. Like it's a crucial element. If it doesn't happen first, then nothing else can happen. It had to happen. Now you might like this. I think there's a funny parallel here. The end of Luke 24. So at the end of Luke, Dr. Luke's gospel, um, there's these two followers of Jesus and they're depressed and it's dark and they're, and, and they're confused and they're perplexed and they're walking along after Jesus's death and they're like, we don't get it. And this odd stranger catches up with them while they're walking and he says, what's going on? And they tell this weird stranger, they're like, uh, hey, we really thought he was going to be the one and now he's dead and we don't know what to think. And, and this weird stranger says, don't you realize he had to die? And it's the same Greek word construction of necessity. I had to be in my father's house. He had to die. Like that's the plan. It had to happen. Now, if you're outside of Christianity looking in, this is weird, perplexing, and confusing, but it's just as confusing for those who follow him too. Um, Joseph and Mary, they're, they're, they're astonished, right? They're gobsmacked, as the English say. We don't get you, little Jay. We don't get you. As a follower of Jesus this morning, Jesus will mess up your conception of what you think he should be doing. And, and the way he treats us, why are you treating me this way? You, you know what he's saying to you, to me this morning? I had to. 
I had to. It was necessary. Uh, let's be honest here. Let's be very honest here with each other, ourselves. Uh, most of us thought we would bring on Jesus as a wingman for our plans. Didn't we? We thought that he could be useful. Like he'd protect my family and guide me into prosperity and, and get my girl and get my guy. Like he's a bodyguard for our dreams and our aspirations. And when that doesn't happen, I don't get you. I don't get you. You're weird. You're perplexing to me. This is where Jesus confuses. No, your ways are not my ways. Your plans are not my plans. Your will is not my will. Here, drink a little cup of suffering. Uh, people in my own family have watched a loved one wither away and they've said, why would God ever treat one of his own this way? One of my favorite Japanese authors of all time, Shusaku Endo, wrote a book, a crushing book called Silence. And the question of Endo's book is where is the benevolence of God when his children are crying out in agony? This is perplexing. Why would you treat me this way? That's what Mary says. Why would you treat us this way? I don't get you. Mary loves him and asks that question, and it means that you can ask that question too. When I was a kid, I read this book called Through Gates of Splendor by Elizabeth Elliot. It's a, it's a missionary book. Hey, 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 we didn't have a TV until I was in fifth grade, okay? So I was reading missionary books. Uh, and, and Elizabeth Elliot's husband, who is now dead, died by spears of the Aka Indians with he and some other of his friends who were missionaries. Um, and you could say, okay, what a waste. Like, I just don't get that plot twist. Young, they were there within weeks of arriving to be missionaries, following Jesus, and then they died. Um, Elizabeth Elliot, and, and I revisited this, she wrote this in that little book, Through Gates of Splendor. Uh, she said, I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. She wrote that as a young lady. And as an older lady, she did not stop believing that. Don't, don't veer from this truth, and we can't this morning. This is one of the hardest things, is that Jesus is going to mess up the steadiness and the life and the comfort of those who follow him. I'm going to give you this straight. I'm not going to fool you. And you will think, why are you handling me this way? Why is this happening? Why are you treating me so? 
If it hasn't happened already, you're going to reach a point where you say, I don't get it. I do not get you. I do not understand what you are doing. You perplex me. Okay. We're honest there. Okay. Okay. Why in the world would you follow him? And the answer to that is that Jesus cares for those he confuses. In verse 51, it tells us after they're confused, after they're astonished, after they're perplexed, he says he went down to Nazareth and was obedient to them. I think we have this idea. Um, if Jesus, it's, it's kind of a, like a logical syllogism. If Jesus loves me, then he will be my painkiller. He will take away the pain if he loves me. Um, and then it follows, right? Based on that little logical nugget, it follows that if the pain is too present and too close to me and too pressing upon me, then he must not love me. Listen to this part. If you're Jesus... And, and you know something. As, as a 12-year-old, you know this. And the text shows this. If you know that you're going to be the new temple, all of these people streaming to the temple, these bricks and these massive granite columns, all, now you're going to be this place where people will stream to you instead of the building. If you knew that you're going to be the Passover lamb that's going to be slaughtered, that's reenacted every single year. And you say, well, you know, that's that's actually, I'm going to be the showcase of the festivals from now on. Like if you know that you're going to be ultimately recognized as, as creator and king, and you're going to be crowned. If you know all that, why in the world would you say, okay, I'll go home and listen to you and do your chore list. Why would you do that? Uh, one of my favorite little books is called uh, A Prayer for Owen Meany. It's by John Irving. He wrote um, Cider House Rules. And um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a personal favorite. And Owen Meany. Owen is a weird, odd, strange kid. Scrawny, uh, precocious, mouthy a little bit smart, super smart, and he speaks in this high, nasally voice that doesn't really change, even after puberty, and he has this perspective on everything, and it's never conventional. He doesn't necessarily break the rules. He's just always doing something that people are not expecting. He's just odd, and he's, and he's so confusing to, to uh, his school and to the town and community, and, and he has his friend John, and, and ever since grade school, um, into junior high, then high school, and after high school, they practice uh, uh, this trick shot, this basketball trick shot that they just made up as kids, right? And it's intended to be a sort of setup for a last second shot uh, where, where Owen passes, or uh, Owen's friend John passes the ball into Owen, and, uh, and then uh, John runs over to Owen and lifts him up 
because he's so non-athletic and he's so scrawny and so little, he needs to be lifted up and, and then he gets the ball in the hoop. Um, and as plays go, if you know anything about basketball, it's an illegal play. You can't do that in basketball. But over the years, they just keep doing it. They keep doing it. They practice it. They're perfecting it. They're getting it so the time is shaved down. It used to take like six or seven seconds. Then they shaved it down to five and four, three. Finally, they, they shave it down to where they, they can do this like in a, 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 a second and a half. And they call it the shot. All right. And although Owen, little scrawny Owen, this anti-athlete, repetition gets him better and better and better. And, and inexplicably, whenever they have some spare time, they're hanging out, they're like, hey, you want to work on the shot? And they work on the shot. Like some imagined kid game that just develops over the years. And Owen himself, the weird kid, the odd kid, he's haunted by this shot. Like always saying that they need to get better. They need to get better. They need to get better. And his friend John doesn't see the urgency of it. He thinks it's got something to do, but he never sees the urgency of it. But Owen is an odd, strange, weird bird. So it fits Owen. Everyone's confused by Owen. And the last pages of the book tell a different story. In a moment, when a grenade is tossed into the middle of a crowd... John flicks the grenade to Owen and he runs over to Owen and he lifts him up towards an open window to throw it out and boom Owen's completely destroyed scrawny weird Owen and there's an entire group of people nuns and children and others are saved and the confusing and the perplexing and the bewilderment of Owen and his weird obsession with the shot makes sense people who were saying I don't get it I don't get him I don't get him I don't get him becomes I get you I get you. See, Jesus said to his parents, I'm going to be under you. I'm going to do your chores. I'm going to follow whatever you want. I'm I'm going to obey you. I'm going to do whatever you say. Because I'm not just going to die the death you should have died. I'm going to live the life you should have lived. At some point, Jesus knew exactly who he was. The Lamb of God who would die. It was his shot. But he went home. And he served his parents. He gives himself to his parents. But also to us. That's how we know we can trust this boy man who confuses us. At the end of Owen Meany, uh, those who know of him and speak of him and look back at him have this affection and awe and respect like never before. Why? This strange, disturbing, odd, not-like-us little boy did something that showed a greater depth and care than anything we had ever seen before. See, this last Christmas story in Luke 2 is great great prep 
for the pain and the storm and the mess and the darkness. In the greatest agony, in the greatest agony, you know what Jesus could have said that he went through? He said, you know what? I'd like to tap out now. I thought that going through all this would be worth it for Tim, but it's just not. I'd like to leave the show now. I want want off the island. I want to go back to my palace. It turns out Tim is... uh, about as clueless about how much I do for him as you can possibly imagine. And when he does see anything I do for him, he's really kind of nonplus and he doesn't show a lot of gratitude and he does whatever he wants. Yeah, I think I'm gonna bail on Tim now. This is way tougher than I thought. Not worth it. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't bail there. Not the greatest point of agony. And because he doesn't bail there, He will never bail on your current darkness, pain, and confusion. See, he's committed to us like he was committed to his parents. So what about you? What do you what do you what do you do with that this morning? I'm talking about you. I would encourage you to do what Mary does. She stores it up. It says this. It says, And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. She put it in the mental scrapbook. She put the pictures in there. She put the quotes in there. We've got a database of quotes our kids have said ever since they could utter words. And when I read through them, I don't remember when they said that. But I need to read those to to laugh again about who they were and are and becoming. What does that do when we store things up? Turn them over in our minds and revisit them. I'll tell you what it does. When the perplexing, confusing Jesus begins to upset your plans and your dreams and your life and your stability and your comfort, you will appeal to what you do know of him. You're going to go back to those crucial memories and pictures and quotes, and you're going to remind yourself, he is for me. He's not against me. I don't get you, Jesus but I know that you have me. He does love me. You do love me. I'm so bewildered right now, but I treasure those things in my heart because I need to know that they're still true. And what will happen when you store those things up in your heart? Little Jay, Jesus the Lamb, the Son of God, will grow on you. And his favor and his grace will develop in you. And the ways that you have and the words that you speak and the demeanor that you have and the impulses in you will change. And he will tattoo his beauty and character all over your life. All over your life. 
That's a Christmas story. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, you are confusing to me, to us. You are mysterious. But we can never say you are not caring and loving of us. Jesus, apply this. Push it and press it into our hearts and minds. We ask and we somewhat plead. In Jesus' name, amen.